0: With respect to sort of brain neurobiology, uh, one of the most replicated findings we have, sort of it's held up over time, is related to a chemical called neuropeptide Y. So we found at Sears School that the active duty personnel who had more NPY actually performed better as rated by the cadre when they were in interrogation stress. For the military folks, I think that's the function of training like you're going to fight so that there's not, you're reducing any controllable novelty uh, in the battle space because novelty uh, is potentially more stressful to our brain.
1: Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI, and in this episode, MWI's Major Jake Moraldi talks to Dr. Charles Morgan. Dr. Morgan is a forensic psychologist whose work at Yale University, at the National Center for Post Traumatic Stress Disorder, and with various military and government organizations has helped us better understand the nature of stress and psychological responses to it on the battlefield. From a neurobiological perspective, what drives PTSD? Is there something that makes certain people more or less susceptible? What happens inside our bodies and in our brains that impacts the way we perform in combat? Dr. Morgan engages with these and other questions in this tremendously interesting conversation. Before we get to it, though, as always, just a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're releasing every day. Second, just so you know, this episode originally aired in 2018. And lastly, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the US government. All right, here's Jake Moraldi and Dr. Charles Morgan.
2: Dr. Morgan, thank you for taking the time to come talk to us today. Um,
0: Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, no,
2: we're excited to have you. Um, Before we get started here, I want to kind of just talk about your background for people that maybe are unfamiliar with, with you or your work. Um, so I'm curious what, what you do now, what you do for the military, and, and that'll kind of frame the discussion going forward here.
0: Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I've done a number of things. My, my, by way of my background, I trained in, in medicine, specialized in psychiatry, and then re-specialized in forensic psych. Um, uh, while well at Yale University. I was on the faculty there for 25 years, and some of the research we'll talk about today has all been done when I was at Yale. And three years ago, I moved to the University of New Haven into the Department of National Security, uh, where I have a new line of research going on. Um, in terms of uh, my, my background, when I got to Yale, the, the center I was with was called the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. It had been created by the U.S. Congress, I think, in 86 or 87 to sort of provide funding and support for research and care for veterans who suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder Mm -hmm. and to better understand the illness. I think at the time, there was a legitimate... um, curiosity and scientific debate about whether or not it was a unique illness or was it a variation of major depression or a different kind of anxiety Mm -hmm. problem. And also we didn't know why do some veterans suffer from PTSD while others who saw roughly the same amount of combat did not suffer from PTSD. At the time, our main populations we were focused on were the Vietnam veteran population Mm -hmm. and still some Korean and World War II veterans. So at the time, uh, at the Yale West Haven VA site, we were the clinical neuroscience division, and our mandate was to look at the neurobiology of what your brain does under stress and mm-hmm. and what are the factors that help you cope or respond to stress. Uh, and in those early years, between 1989 and 1997, we had discovered a number of factors that were quite different in terms of brain functioning um, between people who did and did not have post-traumatic stress disorder. And, but at the time, there's no war going on, right? So when we would look at those results, we were left wondering whether or not the differences we saw in people with PTSD, veterans with PTSD, were a reflection of the illness itself, whether they were maybe a side effect of the illness, So for example, if someone has diabetes, a side effect of poor sugar control Mm -hmm. can be some neuropathy. So Mm -hmm. they can have numbness in their feet or rectal dysfunction, all kinds of different problems. But those problems are not uh, what we would consider the mechanism by which someone develops diabetes or something—it's mm-hmm. a side effect. Um, and then we also didn't know whether or not some of the things that were different in people with PTSD were simply precursors. In mm-hmm. you know, others, maybe they they predated their exposure to the war, and they were simply more vulnerable for for these reasons. But since there was no war going on, we couldn't sort it out. And I remember I was at um, one of the military neuroscience meetings, and I, I met a colonel. Who said to me why don't you come to Fort Bragg have something to show you because I had I think I had said something in my talk about it's it's really too bad I mean well you can't ethically do a mugging study right mm-hmm. to follow people over time so it's really too bad we don't we don't really know we don't have a place where we could look at realistic stress in humans um, and the long and short of it is he introduced me to the survival school programs and I started my research out there in 1997, and that's continued since that time. But it, the early work was to try and validate whether or not the Sears School environment could truly represent realistic stress mm-hmm. in humans. And then would it be a valid scientific model or laboratory where we could look at other issues, like why do people differ or do those differences matter? Uh, and taken together now after all these years, we now know it is. It's a valid place to study realistic stress in humans. And it provided a number of insights along the way as to why and how um, soldiers, sailors, and Marines differ from one another depending on sort of what selection lane they came from mm-hmm. and in understanding the some of the neurobiological and, and psychological factors that do predict a better tolerance under stress or a vulnerability to stress. So... Uh, I hadn't planned on getting into any of that. You know, I started out, I was just, I was going to study patients, and then suddenly I found myself mainly going back and forth to Fort Bragg, and that that turned into... Studying people in selection programs and studying many different kinds of military programs, and then I began also doing operational psych and doing selection and assessment. So, I wear a number of hats. One hat's a researcher hat. Uh, the hat as a as a psychiatrist is I actually do perform selection and assessment mm-hmm. assessments uh, of people, and uh, then in my other hat, I'm I'm a professor and uh, I teach at the university and. Yeah teach kids intelligence analysis these days and research methods and national security. Because along the way. I ended up at the CIA as well. Gotcha. I, I worked there from 2003 to seven and mainly in the office of the chief scientist, uh, working on, uh, detecting deception. It was, was our, was our main
2: focus at mm-hmm. that time.
0: So it's, it's a bit of a odd career. My students ask me, did I plan it? And my quick answer is no, it, there's
2: a lot, there's a lot going yeah. on there. Um, what I want to do to, to help frame this a little bit more is, you know, you talked about um, being a psychiatrist, talked about psychology a little bit, talked about neuro, neurobiology, neuroscience. I'm curious, can you talk a little bit before we get too deep in the conversation about those things kind of individually and how they sort of relate to one another? Cause I get the impression that especially mm-hmm. neurology and neuroscience today is starting to try and bridge the gap between maybe that sort of physical brain and sort of more conceptual mind idea yes there, there are a
0: number of things where there is beginning to be a, a better under um, certain enhanced understanding of how those things overlap with respect to sort of brain neurobiology uh, one of the most replicated findings we have sort of it's held up over time is related to a chemical called neuropeptide y uh, it's a fancy name. It's it's a peptide. It's made in neurons. It looks like a Y. Uh, but the most important thing about it is is this. Um, animals that have more of it and release more of it under stress cope far better. They have a greater capacity to um, function under stress. They retain an appraisal of their environment. They're calmer. They make a more efficient use of the um, adrenaline, so to speak, that they're on. Uh, early on, we saw that veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder had a diminished capacity in neuropeptide Y when we would do challenge studies at the VA. We'd give them a drug, look at it, go up and down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that matched the uh, non-human research data that animals who were exposed to uncontrollable stress, um, it lowered their capacity for NPY release. But the animals that also didn't release as much suffered more. I mean, they, they, they didn't tolerate stress very well. Mm-hmm. So we found at Sear school early on that the uh, active duty personnel who had more NPY actually performed better as rated by the cadre when they were in interrogation stress. Um, when we went to dive school, guys who had more neuropeptide Y performed better than other people in the class. And We've seen that now in a number of programs, both inside and outside the US in special operations community, that um, that individuals who have a greater capacity for the release of MPY uh, tolerate stress much better. In humans, that translates into they're able to think clearly, pay attention to things, remember things. Their memory is better. Their focus is, is better under stress. They don't get what we call symptoms of dissociation. Like they don't get the tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. and Things don't slow down as much. Uh, People may, may remember if they've almost been in an accident before or something or they have been in one, things may go in slow motion. It feels like time slows down. You may feel like you're almost outside your body looking at it. Those are side effects of the rapid turnover of some chemicals in our brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but individuals who have more neuropeptide Y don't experience those things as much. They're much more lucid and, and connected to what's going on in the environment. And as a result, they can respond more adaptively. Uh, because they're they're not disconnected from the environment that they're in. They're not overwhelmed by the anxiety uh, for that. And uh, another finding that we had is related to something called uh, DHEA. People were able to get this in the health food stores for years. It's an over-the-counter sort of thing. People shouldn't take it if they've had breast cancer or melanoma. But it it is sort of the precursor, the mother steroid of your body, mm-hmm. um, And the long and short of it is over the years, both in non-human and in human studies, we found that DHEA is highly protective of certain areas of the brain um, under conditions of stress and results in a better performance if you have more of it. So, for example, in in non-human animals and in human, there's an area of your brain called the hippocampus it's where we do some memory formation spatial memory and one of the one of the tests that we can do with non-human animals is you you it's called the Morris water maze basically mm. you put them in the water they they there's a little platform and it's under the surface and uh, rats and mice can't peek under the surface to see where it is but you knock them off the platform and they have to swim around until they can find it again using orientation markers that are on the little chamber, but they keep keep moving the chamber. So it's stressful, and the rats got to have good spatial memory. The ones that can release more neuropeptide Y do better. The ones that have more DHEA have a much better spatial memory and performance. Mm-hmm. And we found that was true uh, in dive school as well. I measured people five weeks before the end. Day one, we measured their DHEA, and the uh, candidates who showed up day one with more DHEA on board, um, did better than everyone in the um, underwater navigation exercises at night. Uh, They didn't drift. They were far more in tune. So there was a high overlap between what we see in the non-human animals and in the humans uh, with respect to DHEA. It uh, also resulted in better cognitive performance as measured by the cadre in several selection programs as well. So those two chemicals, DHEA and neuropeptide Y, seem to be very much related to um, why and how non-human and human animals do well under stress or if they don't have enough of it do poorly under stress. With with neuropeptide Y it may depend on picking the right grandparents. There are several versions of the gene for it. Uh, one version of the gene is not helpful because under stress it reduces the production of NPY mm-hmm. and people who have that gene are far more likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder when exposed to trauma uh, than than other people. Um, I suspect, although we haven't done the genetic testing yet, that if we sampled the soft community, the special operations community, we would find that there are more people who probably have the gene for making more of it. Um, when we looked, uh, because when we saw those differences at Searskull, School where we said, there's more NPY This higher DHEA in the special versus non special folks. And everybody there was pretty tough. You know, we had SF guys, we had Rangers, we had Marines all coming through SEER at the time. Uh, But there were differences in the production of these hormones. And so we went back to look at the selection gate and found that that's what was producing the differences in these levels in the selected group. People who had more of those, uh, that hormone and that peptide. Did better in selection, uh, probably because it let them focus on the task at hand and not get distracted by the stress. You know that can happen when you're in a selection program. So those are two uh, neurobiological elements that that we know for sure are related to uh, to doing well under stress, and they do overlap with some of the attention and, and focus and mental attitude mm-hmm. sorts of things. Which because probably one. Bootstraps off of the other, that you you can feel better about yourself and more confident, and not see yourself as a as a vulnerable person mm-hmm. when you have been able to cope better under stress. So it uh, right. I right. think That's having more of it prevents in some ways that feedback loop where yep. some people read a failure as a statement about themselves. Uh, most of the people who've been successful see failure as a learning opportunity, and and, and they, they keep going, um, and, and that is one way, and DHEA also has a positive effect on mood mm-hmm. as well. Uh, some people say it has a nice antidepressant effect, mm-hmm. so we could say not only does it protect your brain, but you also feel a little better, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and that does translate into, I think, a different mental attitude as well. Um, just like being physically in shape will for, for many people, you know, I'm confident my body will do what I need it to do. And this is sort of the perfect pairing. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in shape and you can perform in selection and then your brain's keeping up with you and you're not feeling like you're mentally behind the curve. So,
2: right. so to extrapolate this out and to paraphrase a little bit, so your, your findings in the series or studies that you've done and, and working with special operations community is, is basically seeing an increased, resilience based on the the peptide and and some other brain chemicals yes uh just general performance under stress being improved and endurance i kind of if i can infer that kind of from what what else you're saying just generally mm-hmm. being able to stand up over long durations of, of stressful experiences yes yes that's um, correct
0: because the better the better a, a person or an animal tolerates stress the more the less they feel out of control um the less there is a negative impact of one of your major stress hormones called cortisol, which can lead to a number of things. It can shut down your immune system. It can impair memory. uh, it, It can do a number of things. And so that people who do have more DHEA, more NPY, and are performing better under stress, they're experiencing less distress. We, we call this kind of stress eustress, or good stress. Mm-hmm. Like It's stressful, but they actually are enjoying it. And you may have actually seen that when you look at guys going through selection, you'll mm-hmm. see some people smiling. You'll see other people who look overwhelmed by what they're going through, and every now and then you can look around, you'll see a candidate grinning away while working with the team and doing a great job. They're actually enjoying the challenge, and uh, it's a great sign. I mean, you can, you can look around and you go, they're gonna make it, they're gonna make it, mm-hmm. because they're not in that negative loop of then having their stress hormones even higher uh, in that, which results, I think, in people feeling more anxious, more tired, uh, more distracted, uh, and not as able to focus.
2: So so the reason why it's interesting to highlight those sort of three or four major takeaways from from your studies is that's almost sort of by, by definition the environment that warfare happens in, right? It's yes. stressful thing, bad things happen, and you have yes. to bounce back from them you're theoretically going for long durations, under lots of stress the whole time, um, and you're very much out of control and in a very elemental sense.
0: Exactly, And and that's, you know, so you guys, you train like you're gonna fight, because, and neurobiologically what that's doing for you whether you're a high or low NPY person is you're you're making something as familiar as possible, so when you're under stress, you can resort to behavior that you know. It's like in medical school, everybody goes, "You guys are so calm when you're in the hospital, or and somebody dies, or somebody needs a code, like we're running on an algorithm." You do it over and over and over again. And mm-hmm. y- yeah, you're the calm people in the room. And likewise, that's why the pilots sound so calm sometimes, mm-hmm. at least I hope there is. But, uh, but for the military folks, I think that's the function, one of the main functions of training like you're going to fight so that there's not, you're reducing any controllable novelty uh, in the battle space. Because novelty uh, is potentially more stressful to our brain, or something we're not familiar with. Uh, raises raises our attention and vigilance systems in a different way. So I think the more uh, behaviors you have under the belt with the practice, you have lower levels of stress associated with those basic functioning, mm-hmm. those basic function tasks. Uh, and that helps people perform much better as well, uh, which is why I think there is real merit to doing realistic training and and having pe- so there's not really a, you're reducing the number of surprises that at least you could anticipate mm-hmm, uh,
2: for that. Um, so we've talked up to this point a lot about kind of the individual uh, effect of you know, neurochemicals and, and the impact on your performance and your just overall feeling and, and general psychology about what's going on in your life. I want to touch on a, a group dynamics aspect to kind of move it away from that selection uh, specific process, or or even to be perfectly honest, special operations model, which is sort of a small team model, yep. and maybe extrapolate that out. Do you have any sort of findings about how the interplay of all these different, you know, neurochemical? Uh, Structures and and you know the, all the stuff in my head versus the stuff in your head and the yeah. interplay between those how yes. how those impact one another
0: yeah uh, we do we do know a number of things I had one colleague I worked with she was out in Hawaii and we would look at field training exercises um, so between not only at Seer School but in 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 field exercises we were been able to look at how people connect and relate to one another uh, and I'll give you a couple of examples so at at Seer we had permission during one phase when people were placed in isolation, one wing we were allowed to leave the, the door slots open so that the, the the students could actually make eye contact with another student while they were being isolated. And in the other wing, we kept all the slots closed. And we did that a series of times and we measured different hormones, your testosterone, your cortisol, your level of adrenaline. And what we found um, was this interplay between personality and hormones. By and large, if you could see... Uh, one of your friends, your colleagues, your conspecifics, like in the uh, non-human studies, it reduced cortisol, which is a good thing. It lowered the stress levels, and it brought testosterone back up. So they they were they were moving closer to an anabolic rather than a catabolic state and breaking down things, being under stress. The people who are isolated experienced higher levels of the stress hormone of cortisol and lower levels of testosterone, which we didn't think is a good thing over time. So we know that the social the social connectivity, that, that social bond, is really important at attenuating stress. So having trust, colloquially you might say, I trust the people I'm with. Mm-hmm. I love the people I'm with. Um, I rely on them. Being bonded really does change the hormones and, and the physiology. And so that... That leads as a segue, though, then into what we think about professionally as morale in morale leadership and burnout is that when people lose confidence in each other or don't trust each other or don't trust the command decisions above them, Mm -hmm. we know that that raises uh, the level of a psychological construct we call burnout, uh, which is that people feel cynical, they feel tired, they don't feel like what they're doing is making any difference, and they... Usually start looking for a new job mm-hmm. or where else they can go. Burnout has very, very big, has a very large impact on your neurophysiology. So the higher the burnout, the more your cortisol response pattern looks like someone who has post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. disorder. It changes your heart rate variability. So being connected to other people is helpful. Um, being cynical and disconnected from them is not. And so I think that that. Anything in that morale and leadership lane that can promote, you know, trust, uh, you know, cohesion, unit cohesion mm-hmm. is a really important thing, um, and we see that in the psychological profiles as well. You know, some people by nature are not people people. They're really happy if they can close the door and all the other people in the world are gone and they can work solo and then you have extroverts like me who I leave the door open because a human may go by and I go, hello. Mm -hmm. Uh, We we like to talk to people. Um, So there is a spectrum but the spectrum that matters the most when it comes to team cohesion is a dimension of personality that's called agreeableness. Um, It's Some people cynically will say, "Well, it's it's how far you go from being Machiavelli to Mister Rogers." (laughs) In a sense, (laughs) if you are higher on agreeableness, it means you you do trust uh, a little more. You're you like a team play. You like the team. You want the team. If the we all win. If the team wins, mentality. Uh, You're not backstabbing to other people. You're reasonably straightforward and honest and altruistic, and you you do take other people's feelings into account when you make decisions. for a for good team life, people have to have a a healthy amount of agreeableness because the person who's busy playing everybody else like a pawn on a chessboard, doing the Machiavellian approach, generally that generally is destructive to morale and cohesion. If somebody sees it in the command structure, they feel like we're only being used because this person is trying to get themselves promoted. That that doesn't go over well, you know that and so um, but that feature of personality is very important to this this feeling that a team is working together and can trust one another and can bond. so in in selection and assessment, we don't look like we don't look for everybody who looks just like Mr. Rogers because mm-hmm. we do want people to be a little bit more cynical than that. <laughs> but we want there's a sweet spot for that in in programs that seems to really make um, team life work very well. Um, and another dimension is that conscientiousness dimension about being being committed to doing the best that you can and perfecting mm-hmm. your skills and not having somebody else always look over your shoulder to make sure you're doing your job. That's that's the one of the best predictors of having a great employee. and they're really high on that, they have self they they are self driven to achieve to do well to follow the rules to make sure that things are done right. Uh, those two features are um, really important. Uh, I think for morale and leadership and cohesion, and and when they're not there, it plays a it plays out, and you can see the reflection in people's hormones and physiology when when they become more cynical, like I say, and less trusting. Yeah, yeah.
2: I think I think it's fascinating that there is, you've said it a couple times, and and it seems to bear itself out, you know, in in sort of a common sense way, but obviously in the research, yeah. there that the feedback loops are are there, and that. The feedback loop of how agreeable I am and, and how willing I am to trust you yeah. influences both our, our brain chemistries and then potentially yeah.
0: it's ha- creates an upward yeah. spiral
2: of, okay, now we yeah. trust each other more. And then that just reinforces itself and then vice versa in, in the downward spiral. Um,
0: yeah, you know, and there are, there are, there's a little wiggle room in the, in, I'll, I'll mention the area, you know, between introverts and extroverts. By and large, when we looked at people at Sear, when you put people in isolation, if you just compared the introverts to the extroverts, the extroverts were experiencing more stress being shut off from other humans, right? Whereas the introverts were a little happier, mm-hmm. not having anybody around. And then when they got into the interrogation cycle, the extroverts were slightly less stressed mm-hmm. than the introverts. So, but 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 the other effect is much bigger. But it does bootstrap on itself. Um,
2: Um, tying into that, the concept of the feedback loop, obviously the thing that's going to disrupt that are some of the external things that can happen in, in conflict or in a selection process or, or what have you, how does, do you have any research or any understanding of how those sort of uncontrollable things that we talked about before influence Mm -hmm. one individual or several individuals in the group and how that can kind of cascade across the the formation?
0: Yes. um, the... The principle we've learned whether you study non-humans or humans is that um, the more something feels or is perceived as uncontrollable, Mm -hmm. um, the more deleterious the effects on the person's mindset and physiology. So um, uncontrollable stress in animal studies is the best way to create ulcers, declines in the immune system, poorer performance, poorer memory, it degrades um, nearly everything. So I think that anything that increases the perception of having more control, that the stress is controllable, can have a beneficial effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of my former professors did a series of experiments where monkeys were yoked together and they were getting foot shocks. And one of the monkeys could actually reach the little button. Mm -hmm. The the monkey believed that by pushing the button, it would diminish the shocks. It didn't, but the monkey believed that it did. And even when it was doing something that wasn't having effect, and it believed it was, mm-hmm. it was under less stress than than the one who couldn't reach the button. Now, if you did have the, when you did the experiments and the monkey did was able to actually push the button to diminish the shock, it's under much less stress because it's under its control. Uh, so when you apply that principle then to your work in military life, you would look at uncontrollable stress, unforeseeable stress is going to happen in a, in a battle battle space, but learning how to adapt quickly and figure out what you can gain control over and maintain some schedule over will reduce, will reduce stress. Um, so I think I tell people this can be as simple as getting control over sometimes your sleep-wake cycle, mm-hmm. making sure that you do, it's just not sporadic, whether it's your sleep-wake cycle, your exercise cycle, your eating cycle. All those things will help. Having those regimented in, mm-hmm. they will help you cope with stress better than having it. Than feeling like everything you do is simply a reflexive response to the stress in the environment. Mm-hmm. You know, we we in our clinical work, you know, in psych, we tell people, uh, you know, no one can make you mad. Only you make yourself angry. Right. Other people behave the way they do, um, but. They're not the ones that that make you feel anger or make you feel stress, um, and so to certain degrees, people can learn that the locus of control, as it moves into their own head mm-hmm. over many things, reduces stress and enhances both their cognitive and physical performance. But feeling like you're a ping pong ball, you know, is, is, is between different players in the environment is the most stressful. I think for for that, so I don't envy the. The officers who are caught between sometimes, you know, stress above them and stress below them. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, My other professor, John Mason, he used to study that in Vietnam and noted that the the officer who has to sit with all this information that they're protecting, um, you know, the people below them from Mm -hmm. and just sitting on the information, tolerating and waiting to do, they're under much more stress when you look at their hormones and you look at their physiology. And the people, so they're the buffer, kind of like a parent is for a kid. Sure, you know, and uh, yeah. but so those principles never go away. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's the challenge when you design um, how how to train troops and what troops should be doing. It, but the but the the principle is to have a sense of control to control as much that is controllable because mm-hmm. it just it, it it reduces the play space for the uncontrollable stress, which is challenging for anyone.
2: Yeah. Well, and, I think I, I, when you say that, I think about. You know, the conventional wisdom that I've always heard of, maybe this is just places I've been, but but the conventional wisdom being that if something bad happens on a deployment or someone gets killed or someone gets hurt, you won't. you don't want to sit in a place of safety or change the routine up a lot. You want to get guys back out there as quickly as possible yeah. because they now have not something else to think about, but they have something that they're in control of. They're in control yes. of themselves. They're in control of the mission that they're trying to do and that that is going to help alleviate yeah. some of the stress that maybe throwing their yes. routine out of whack because something bad happened is, yeah. is going to have.
0: So. You know, lots of clinicians, you know, we tell people, you know, we want you to get your feelings out. We want you to talk. Uh, I'll be blunt. the You shouldn't be talking about your feelings when it isn't the time and place, um, because that is distracting. That pulls people off uh, their game. There is a time and place for it. But in selection, we see that, that people who can just, put things out of their mind and focus on a task, actually do better mm-hmm. uh, for a very long time. Um, and, you know, we kind of do that naturally, whether it's when you're not in a combat situation, but let's say you have a death in the family. There's all the organization that happens around having a funeral, having a service, having things. Those rituals do help people mm-hmm. because it's organizing. I think when um, you think about active duty life, get, keeping people working is important. We we find that in treatment Uh, settings for people with post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. Um, Keeping them from work is not helpful. Um, Putting them in a program that gets them back to work uh, fairly rapidly but helps them work on the issues that are coming up results in a better treatment outcome five years later. Um, But helping them avoid uh, the, the work environment and some of the stressful environments, it doesn't really work out very well over time. So I think that while you're in an active duty space, um keeping people busy while still acknowledging somebody may be having feelings is the, the the right thing to do but just pulling them away and letting them sit with it or removing them from the space and separating them from people they're attached to uh from their unit uh is generally not a good thing mm-hmm. um i think most people don't realize the degree to which when you've bonded with um you know a group of people that you're you're going to war with they don't realize the significance of being separated from them, uh, both emotionally and neurobiologically. Mm-hmm. You're attached to them. To you. That's where your your identity may be there. Um, and in many ways, that's it's better to be around your attachment systems to cope with stress than it is to be isolated from them. Mm-hmm. So paradoxically, sometimes people think they're doing the right thing by sending a guy away from the battle space mm-hmm. and pulling him way back to the rear. Um, that usually is not the greatest thing to do. Uh, I mean, the French found that in, in World War mm-hmm. One you know, versus the Brits sending people home, keeping the French on keeping them closer to the front line reduced some of the symptoms of battle fatigue at mm-hmm. the time, but it also reduced the guilt, the feeling of being separated from people. So does that kind of make sense? No, absolutely. I, yeah,
2: absolutely. No, it makes absolute sense. What I want to touch on uh, as we kind of wind up here Is we've talked a lot and and a lot of your research is obviously based on sort of American perspective on things Uh, and I'm curious because you know the the group dynamics components and the Mm -hmm. you know uh, neuroscience components of all of this are very important as we discussed to American formations and American troops doing the things that they do but theoretically the processes for the people who are interacting with our coalition partners the other military formations we're working with the civilians on the battlefield. All these people, theoretically at least, have roughly the same sort of process. I'm curious if you have found, or if you'd be interested in finding, any cultural differences that maybe impact the way that we can apply some of the stuff we've talked about.
0: For the for the neurobiological data, um, that's been replicated in non-American populations, and but the but with a caveat, I'd say that culture does matter, and how. How people are recruited to be in the fighting forces matters. So it mattered in the U.S. when we had a draft, mm-hmm. right? There were lots of people who said, well, I'm not leaving the country, so I'll serve the country, but who were much higher on a personality dimension of what we call a emotional reactivity or neuroticism and would prefer not to be in a war fighting business if they didn't have to, but mm-hmm. they'll do it and they'll do fine, but they are more at risk for experiencing anxiety and worry and overthinking things in some ways. Um, in, in that, ha- But in our culture now, we predominantly have people say, I want to sign up and I want to go do this. So there is a bit of a self-selection mm-hmm. bias that you don't see in all your coalition partners. So there's going to be a greater degree of variability in the perceived level of commitment organizational ability, uh, showing up on time for training. I mean, I talk to people who do military advising or training foreign troops, and you know, our our guys always laugh about it. They go, they don't show up. They they Mm -hmm. might show up, they might not show up. We tend to perceive that as them being lazy Mm -hmm. and not being, that's our interpretation of it. Uh, But I think it fails to appreciate from their cultural perspective how they view the whole task at hand and its purpose and its utility. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I think in, you know, there's a lot. I think there's a lot more work that could be done to try and look at and then with their attitude, how does that affect their hormones? I'm not aware of anybody studying our our coalition um, partners, uh, other than looking at you know maybe people from France, the UK, and mm-hmm. uh, and the Netherlands and uh, Norway. I'm aware of data in those groups, but not in not in some of the groups uh, like in Afghanistan or you know sub-saharan Africa or something, but that would be really interesting uh, I tell my students all the time there's so much more work to be done right. you know it's sort of the tip of the iceberg uh for uh for the neurobiological studies and then extending it into the personality assessments mm-hmm. saying what works
1: right.
0: you know it, it, it was just you just made me think um I was just down at Fort Benning um we were doing some assessments with uh the Mata uh, program and we were reflecting on the issue that so many direct action sort of roles have been given to the special forces community that now this advising role is being extended and given to another group where that used to be the primary sort of SF mission. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, it's going to be a challenge because the selection gate is different Um uh, and the attributes that go into that we know at least know something about what makes somebody a good advisor to motivate other people to teach other people to help them without them feeling sort of spoken down to or to make sure it's a mm-hmm. they're feeling like they're partners in the in the learning endeavor. Um, it, it's going to be a challenge. I, I think uh, that's what I told the colonel after we did the assessments. I said this is this is new. Uh, just asking for people to or tasking people to go do it is in the long run probably not the the thing not, you want not to the do. way to go it's probably not the way to go <laughs> um but you know we'll see but,
2: yeah yeah no it'll be interesting to see especially i i think that's uh you know a really interesting concept we actually have major montcom here has written a bunch about the SVAB, so yeah. we're curious to see what that looks like coming back um to wind up here i ask this because we're here at west point and i always ask this of, of the guests that i interview um all this stuff that we've talked about over the last 35 minutes or so, if I'm a cadet or a junior officer, if I'm gonna be graduating this place shortly, um, how can I use this information? What what can I do to apply this to make myself better or, or my unit better?
0: I think I would, lots lots of people don't really think about neurobiology that much. So I what I would say is, remember that how you are perceived as a leader um, how you how you treat people and how you convey information to them will affect more than their their mind. It affects people physically and their capacity to be able to perform and to cope. Um, and so I would I would tell them uh, making sure that people feel that their leader is um, fair, accessible, um, and that the leader cares are the and it's translating that into direct action. A lot of people feel like they are caring and that they care for the men and men and women under them but they don't know how they're perceived and i would i tell people remember that loop and you need you need to be able to generate a feeling of honesty with people around you so that you as the leader actually getting the feedback you need to be able to help contain their anxiety and their needs to to be a good leader because it leaves them in much better shape to you know to be good warfighters uh, when the leader is handling uh, their position correctly. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it. You know, I say don't get don't get lost uh, into only focusing on your own career. I, I mean, I think it's easy to do. I don't want to. You know, people aren't bad because they do that. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that it's unhelpful uh, for the morale and the and the efficient functioning of the troops below them. So I would encourage them to stay focused in that way. Whether they remember the names of the chemicals or not, the, the principle <laughs> is: you, you really need to make sure you understand how to be the effective leader, and that does include this communication loop. Uh, I've seen that in many units where I've been asked to consult, where you know the leader says, "Hey, I'd like your opinion," people give it, and then they get their head cut off. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> suddenly someone's moved, and you go, "Well, I guess giving your speaking freely is not really what's wanted sure. here." Uh, so I'd say the and there's reasons people do it, but I. I tend to be a believer in, in uh, a little more openness about that really taking to heart that that feedback loop is critical to, to help them be really, really, really positive and strong in what they're going to do. So.
2: All right. Well, Dr. Morgan, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to us.
0: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI Podcast. Before you go, hopefully you're already subscribed to the podcast. If not, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please take just a couple quick moments and leave a rating or give us a review. It really is a huge help in getting the word out to new listeners. All right, thanks again.